love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Just got an email from Jim Harold from Jim Harold's Campfire and Jim Harold's Paranormal Podcast. And, and any number of other podcasts that he's a part of. <laughs> I know, I know. He's amazing. He really is. He works really hard. Um, he's invited us to be on his Halloween special. Super excited about that. It's my favorite holiday, so as much as I can immerse myself in it, I'm in. He does a video show on Halloween, and last year he dressed up like a vampire. Mm-hmm. So I guess we're we're expected to wear costumes of some I'm sort. I'm okay with that. I, I knew you Absolutely. would be. I, I, would be. I have some ideas. I'm going to go cleverly disguised as myself. No, you're not. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. Right. Um, cool. <laughs> we'll give you details on that if you'd like to uh, join us Halloween night on Jim Harold's uh, show. Super excited. Very exciting. Very exciting indeed. All right. I am ready to go. I am ready. You know, with Halloween right around the corner, I thought I'd start to focus a little bit more on the paranormal. Oh, okay. And so from the, there's nothing more scary than ghost stories that come from real people, real experiences. That's right. So I have trolled the darkest corners of the interweb (laughs) to collect these stories Mm -hmm. that are allegedly true. Now, the last time you did this, I could have sworn that one of the stories was from R.L. Stein's Goosebumps. No. Um, no, but no. That's fine. No, mostly Reddit. Okay. <laughs> when I say darkest corner of the internet, <laughs> I mean Reddit. Um, and these are from people that are, uh, people that hold positions in society that give them some credibility. Law enforcement, doctors, people like that. Jay Alcott writes... I'm a psychiatric nurse. Early in my career, I worked at a residential mental health facility. There's a resident that I will call Marion Duchesne. He was an elective mute, which simply means that he didn't, wouldn't, couldn't talk, but there was no pathological findings as to why. He had spoken earlier in his life and in fact seemed quite normal back then, but then the notable, with the notable exception of being close to seven feet tall. He was a very tall man. He'd been raised in the Deep South and joined the military when he was about 19. After boot camp, he was stationed somewhere in the South. One night, he just vanished. 
he was declared AWOL for many years, and finally they declared him missing and dead. Ten years later, a seven-foot-tall man walked into the VA hospital emergency room in my part of the Midwest and said to the receptionist, quote, My name is Marion Duchesne, and I have been dead for ten years. And those were the last words he spoke. What? He was covered with dust. He was wearing the same clothes that he had been reported to be wearing the night that he vanished. His social security number had not been used, and he had no identification on his person. However, they were able to identify him via fingerprints. He was well-fed, he was in good health, except for his refusal to speak. The family was notified, but they said they had already grieved their loss and said that this couldn't possibly be him. They oh. claimed they claimed that he was a, quote, haint and a stand-in for their dead relative and demanded not to be contact again. Wow. Contacted again. A haint. H-A-I-N-T. I had to look that up. The, that's like a, a spirit that uh, is, I think, generally associated with negative stuff, yeah. right? An evil ghost, evil spirit. Uh, it comes from Southern lore, primarily along the Carolina coast. It feels like Creole to me almost. Yeah. So Marion stayed. He paced all day, every day, not in a frantic way but just lumbering up and down the halls and outside the building. He smiled all the time, and he'd be moving his mouth in a way that indicated talking or muttering, but he was dead silent. He had an unnerving habit of throwing his head back with his mouth wide open as if he were laughing heartily, but not even a breath could be heard. Oh, wow. If told to go to the dining room for a meal, he would go and he would eat. But if nobody told him, he just kept pacing, never indicating hunger. If offered a cigarette, he'd smoke it in an oddly formal way, almost delicately, if that makes sense. But he never seemed to crave smoking. The man wanted nothing. If I talked to him, he appeared to listen, periodically throwing his head back in that laughter-mimicking way of his. That is weird. Mm. That's the thing that creeps me out the most about this story is that mute laughing. There was nothing to do for this man. Various medications were tried, but they did not affect him either positively or negatively. Occupational ther therapy did nothing because Marion would just grin, and unless told to stay put, he'd get up and start pacing again. On my last day at the job, on my way to something better, the last thing I saw was Marion pacing in the parking lot, throwing his head back to, quote, laugh. Later, I wondered if all along I'd been dealing with a ghost. All these years later, I still don't know. Oh, wow. That's bizarre. It is. Do you think he didn't follow up on his end of the deal with Ursula? Like maybe stole his voice. Something went wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's weird that uh, that he's he he was able to talk when he was little, mm. and then wouldn't speak, and then disappeared, and then when he shows up, he says one sentence. He says, "My That's name is it. Marion Duchesne, and I've been dead for ten years," and then says nothing else, and then the whole mute laughing thing that mm. just creeps me out. S. Keeler writes. A friend's father is a police officer in one of the larger villages of Illinois. He and his partner were working night shift when they were called to investigate a suspected break-in at a local morgue. They arrived to find the custodian waiting for them out front. The custodian said that he'd been mopping one of the corridors and had seen something move in his peripheral vision. He looked up and he saw a person quickly cross from one side of the hallway to the other. If I were alone in a morgue, 
mopping a floor <laughs> and saw that, I would have to remop the floor, if you know what I mean. He couldn't tell much about the person as uh, he had been turning the lights off as he worked his way through the building, just a dim outline, but enough to be sure of what he had seen. He was unarmed, so he called the police. They stepped up and then stepped outside to wait. My friend's dad and his partner entered the morgue. They started off by calling out to anyone who might be inside. There was no answer. One of these guys. Hello? 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 That reminds me of one of your Halloween outfits. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh gosh, mate, over 10 years ago, I was uh, that girl from the horror movies. And so I was just wearing a towel and a lot of makeup. And I carried around a flashlight and, and you just said, said, Hello? Hello? <laughs> it's beautiful. Thank you. They began to do a sweep, walking down the central corridor with hands on their guns, checking each room to the side, occasionally calling out for any intruder to show themselves. My dad's friend came upon a room with the light off, pitch black inside. He fumbled for the switch and flicked it on. The room lit up, nothing in there but an empty waiting room. Then he heard his partner call out, Hey, stop, turn around. My father's dad swung back into the corridor, and his partner had unholstered his gun, was pointing it at the end of the long corridor. He said, She went inside around the corner. The custodian said, She's trapped. There are no exits that way. They had the custodian lock himself in the waiting room for safety, then advanced down the corridor, calling out to the woman to show herself that they wouldn't hurt her. This time, my friend's dad reached the end first, with his back to the wall, peered around the corner. The woman was standing by a big gray door. Lights were off here, too, so it was hard to see her clearly. But he could see she wasn't holding a gun and she had long, fair hair. He stepped out from behind the corner to ask her, but she opened the door and disappeared into the dark on the other side, shutting the door behind her. He sprinted up to the door, and he pulled on the handle. It was locked. He banged on the door for a while, called out to her, no answer. The door had a deadlock on it, so his partner brought over the custodian to unlock it. They turned on the flashlights to see better. The custodian rounded the corner, and he faltered a little bit. This door? Are you sure? This door doesn't lock from the inside. The custodian found the right key. He turned the lock. The cop said, we're coming in. Have your hands up. They entered the room. Flashlights illuminating every corner. The custodian hit the lights, which the room lit up. It was totally empty except for some equipment against the wall and two gurneys in the middle of the room. One was empty and the other one was covered in a sheet that appeared to have a body underneath of it. Ooh. So they thought, yeah, all right, nice hiding place. Mm -hmm. My dad's friend approached and it was the smell that first spooked him. It smelled like a corpse. He pulled the sheet down and there the woman lay. Straggly light brown hair all around her face. The tag on her toe said she'd been dead for four days. My friend's father's a devout Christian, doesn't believe in ghosts or the supernatural, not even now, but he doesn't know what to make of this event. Sure. <laughs> that would, uh, yeah. I'd be like, uh, yeah, uh, Sergeant, here's my badge <laughs> and my gun. I'm done. That's enough. Thank you. Yep. Isaac W. said, I'm an electrician. Once myself and a coworker were at a ward where we were repairing a bad circuit box. We were down in the basement taking out the old box and all of a sudden, one of the patients came scrambling down the stairs beside us, mumbling, Jack Smith will vanish at my say. Oh. That's not the person's real name, he said. Staff came down right after and brought her back where she belonged. But I kid you not, that staff member that was being mumbled about by the patient fell over limp and went into a coma. 
I don't know anything after that. I couldn't find out if the staff member survived. And I didn't want to be nosy. I still am pretty shook up about how a human could predict something like that. I mean, I know cats can. Yeah, there are all all kinds of stories like that. What was the story that we were talking about at one point? There was a cat at a nursing home, Mm -hmm. and the cat would always go into the room and hang out with the person that was just about to die. Right. I think the cat was killing them. (laughs) Another uh, theory is, well, it's a nursing home. They're all on their way. (laughs) Rude. Matt Newby writes, I'm a detective and spent some time as an expert on sex crimes and crimes against children. It was the best slash worst assignment I've ever had. One case I had came in at midnight. A young woman with a toddler came into one of our precincts to report her ex-boyfriend raped her in the most violent and sadistic way. I won't share the gruesome details. I have no idea how this woman made her way to the precinct with a toddler. Part of the investigation required me to talk to the toddler. The victim said the toddler had been present for everything. Mm. I'm a child forensic interviewer as well. During the interview, the toddler recalls their father becoming angry and hitting the mom. Then the toddler said that nice woman showed up and she couldn't see past the nice woman. The nice woman held her and told her that they were both going to be safe and sang her a song in a different language. The toddler said the nice woman went over to the front door and knocked on the door. Then the nice woman helped them and their mom to the car before flying away. In the victim's interview, she said that her ex-husband had a knife to her throat and put it to the skin to cut her throat open. But he got distracted for some reason and ran out of the apartment. No explanation why. The suspect was caught about eight hours later. He confessed to absolutely everything when they asked him about the knife to the throat. He said, I swear to God I was going to cut that bitch's throat open. But I thought I heard somebody knocking on the door. And I thought it was the police. So I ran. He's now serving life in prison. Wow. Mom and toddler are safe. That's nuts. But the uh, officer said, I sure would like to know about that woman. Yeah. A person in social services said, quote, I had a call to a residence for a mental evaluation for a 5150. Anyway, I get there and speak to a 50-something-year-old woman who states her 20-something-year-old son is under the influence of an unknown drug and kept repeating that he can't go in the bedroom because there was an old man hanging in the room. She stated she was too scared to go into his room and investigate it for herself because he constantly brings over friends that are drug addicts, and she's unsure if his claims were true or not. I then go speak to the son, who is clearly under the influence of a stimulant. He goes on to tell me that he was told by a, quote, spirit not to go into the bedroom because because her father, who was dressed in a military Class A uniform, was hanging in his bedroom. I checked the room out. Of course, nobody was hanging from the room. As I'm in the middle of explaining to the mother that there was no body in the bedroom, a veteran officer arrives to the scene to assist me. He pulled me aside and stated earlier in his career he responded to this residence and that same bedroom. He had to investigate a suicide by hanging of an older male subject. He didn't remember all the details, so I looked it up in our report management system in my patrol car, and sure enough, the officer was correct. The subject who died was a World War II veteran and had dressed in his Class A military uniform and hung himself in that room. Whoa. In my mind, I always thought that when the per- when they purchased the home, possibly the incident had been disclosed mm-hmm. to them. However, just don't know for sure. Real-life ghost stories, or certainly unexplained creepy stuff. <laughs> For sure. 
And you and I have both had personal experiences that could be... Could it be? Could it be? Could be described as being able to fall into the category of uh, of paranormal. I mean, certainly there's a question, and we've talked about these types of things in past episodes. So mm-hmm. who knows? But I do know this. That's some scary shit. <laughs> Especially the seven-foot-tall guy who laughs quietly. All I could think about was how uh, when I am like overcome with emotion, like if I'm having a, a good, a solid weep, mm-hmm. um, I get to a point where I cry, but I don't make any noise <laughs> and just my body shakes uh-huh. violently. Yeah, I hate that. Sorry about that. Just push your feelings down. Push those feelings for down. Me, yep, for me, for me, right. you right, know, because right. I don't want to deal with that. You're right. And now, that thing in the middle. A law professor by the name of Roger Fisher suggested that the nuclear launch codes be implanted in a volunteer's heart. He said the president should have to kill the innocent person with a butcher's knife to get the codes. Fisher hypothesized that if the president felt he couldn't physically take a human life, he shouldn't make the decision that would take the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. 
And here's the thing. If you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames. And living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities. It's not for everyone. Angie sent us an email, curator at theboxofoddities.com. Here's a personal story. Just listen to your episode on Cheeseman Park. I returned to Denver this summer during a masked, socially distanced visit with my friends to the Botanic Gardens, and we used the app Ghost Detector on my phone. (laughs) It uses EMF and uh, records EVP to tell you when ghosts are around. I've seen this app. I actually had it at one point. It would just spit out weird things like green pencil. Okay. Oh my gosh. My dad only used green pencils. (sighs) When we were walking in the back part of the garden that borders Cheeseman, the lines on my phone indicated EMF activity, jumped into the red, and my phone started beeping frantically. I said to my friends, something's right here, in response to a loud, deep, booming voice that came to my phone saying, Go away. Go away. That's how I envision sure. it. Yep. The four of us in our 40s with gray hair and middle age spread embraced our inner 13-year-olds screaming and took off <laughs> like Usain Bolt coming off the starting line in a gold medal race. Mission accomplished, Cheeseman Park Ghost. Mission accomplished. <laughs> we actually had a really fun interaction with um, an actor who was in an episode of True Terror with Robert England, yeah. and the episode was about ch- the ghosts of Cheeseman Park. Yeah, he's he's one of the freaks, and he said he really enjoyed that uh, story because he had just shot this TV episode, and so we checked it out, and he he did great. He did a great job. He did a great job. Absolutely, what check was his out name? Justin Sisk. Justin, good job, buddy. The episode was called Spirits in the Air. Highly recommend. You can find it on Amazon. So what do you have for me at this particular junction in time, my fair lady? (laughs) Well, we have talked about many times the real problem 
that they had for a period of burying people alive. Oh, yes. Um, phobias generally are irrational fears, but until the 20th century, the fear of being buried alive was not irrational, no. really, in any way. The medical professionals couldn't always tell, and that was particularly in the case of people who were in deep comas or those who had apparently drowned. In fact, one of the uh, early resuscitation societies was called the Society for the Recovery of Persons Apparently Drowned, which was later renamed to the Royal Humane Society. Really? And we've talked about how inventors came up with uh, contraptions mm. to uh, draw attention in the event that someone had been buried alive, you know, the bell on a string and so on and so forth. But various suggestions were made to test for signs of life, ranging from pouring vinegar and pepper into the corpse's mouth to applying red hot pokers to the feet or even the the, the rectum. We mm, talked about yeah, that. That's when right. It didn't go out. Red hot, I don't right up a corpse's yeah. bomb. Uh, writing in 1895, the physician J.C. Usley claimed that as many as 2,700 people were buried prematurely each year in England and Wales, although the estimated uh, figures in other resources say the number's closer to about 800 a year. That's enough, I That's think. That's 800 too many. Yeah. So Hannah Beeswick was terrified of being buried alive. Uh, the fear's called tapphobia, and understandably so. Hannah was from England, north of Manchester, and she was born in 1688, uh, the daughter of John and Patience Beeswick of Cheatwood Old Hall, Manchester. She inherited a considerable amount of money from her father, and one of her brothers, John, had shown signs of life just before his coffin lid had been closed. A mourner noticed that his eyelids were flickering. And upon examination, the doctor on site, Dr. Charles White, confirmed that John was still alive. John regained consciousness a few days later and lived for many more years. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my so, God. Hannah had some fears revolving around <laughs> being buried alive. Yeah. She asked the family doctor, the same one, Charles White, to ensure that there was no risk of her being buried alive when her time came. Now, there's no mention in her 1757 will of her desire to be embalmed, but it has been suggested that she requested that her body be, be kept above ground until it was obvious that she was dead and mm. nothing other than dead. And it was unclear whether she knew about Dr. White's personal collection of mummies when she asked him to be in charge of oh, this. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. You have to do your due diligence when it comes to assigning a person care of your corpse. <laughs> yeah. So, when Hannah passed away, Dr. White took possession of her body, and he was unable to resist the temptation to add another mummy to his collection. He, his wet and dry exhibits, he called them. Uh -huh. So he made the decision to embalm her. The method of embalming used by White is not recorded, but we do know that he studied under William Hunter, who had a early system of embalming that he developed. And it's, so it's likely that, that White went about it the same way. Didn't they use arsenic in the early days? I well, think that was one of the substances they used. In this case, the veins and arteries would have been injected with a mixture of turpentine and vermilion. Hmm. 
after which the organs would have been removed from the chest and abdomen and placed in water to clean them and reduce their bulk. Next, as much blood as possible would have been squeezed out of the corpse and the whole body was washed with alcohol. Then they would have replaced the organs and repeated the injection of turpentine and vermilion. The body cavities would then be filled with a mixture of camphor, uh, nitrate, and resin before the body was sewn up and all openings were filled with camphor. Hmm. After a final washing, the body would have been packed into a box containing plaster of Paris that would have absorbed any excess moisture still in there and then probably would have been coated with something, likely tar or a wax of some sort, to preserve it. Wow. It's a process. That's that's a little more than a weekend hobby. Well, according to legend, White opted to uh, put her embalmed and mummified corpse with all but her face wrapped in cloth on display Inside an old grandfather clock. So, of course, it had that glass front. Sure. So you could see her mummified body and then her face sticking out. Wow. At the top of the clock. Visitors flocked to his home where he'd pull back the curtain, I'm sure very dramatically, to reveal Beeswick's embalmed face. But it was only after Dr. White himself died in 1813 that her corpse became known as the Manchester Mummy. So Hannah was bequeathed to another doctor who in turn bequeathed her to the fledgling museum of the Manchester Society of Natural History in 1828. There she became known as the Manchester Mummy or the Lady in the Clock. Even though she was no longer displayed in a clock, she was still known as the Lady in the Clock, which I think is creepier than any name I could come up with. Lady in the Clock is far more ominous than just mm. the Manchester mummy. Yep. It, to me, implies all kinds of sinister shit that we just don't expect. <laughs> so, there are no photos of Hannah Beeswick, um, but one of the few contemporary accounts of her is provided by Philip Wentworth, who's a local historian. The body was well-preserved, he said, but the face was shriveled and black. The legs and trunks were tightly bound in strong cloth, such as used for bed ticks. And the body, which was that of a little old woman, was inside a glass coffin-shaped case. Hannah is on display. Her face is not holding up great. Uh, The rest of her body is still wrapped, so maybe it's doing better. Who knows? Maybe this method of mummification wasn't really effective. Who can say? You've just mentioned a lot of horrifying things, Mm. but to me, the most horrifying thing you mentioned was bed ticks. Well, that's just a material used to cover a mattress. It's called bed ticks. Oh, I thought it was, never mind. No, it's not like bed bugs. Gross. Um, I should mention that I got most of this information from allthatsinteresting.com, of course, Wikipedia, and historicuk.com. So as the years went on, the Manchester Museum evolved and was now much more on the academic and scientific study of artifacts. And it was decided that Hannah didn't really fit there anymore. So the uh, those in charge of her body decided it was time to lay her to rest. Hannah was interred in an unmarked grave 
in July 1868, more than 110 years after her death. Wow. People have reported seeing a shadowy female figure in a black silk floating through the walls of her family's estate of Birch and Bower. Whether or not that is true, Hannah certainly managed to avoid being buried alive. Yeah, about the time that they cut out all of her internal organs and pickled them. Right. Uh, I think the odds of her, you know, being buried alive went right out the window. Buried alive or embalmed alive? Which one would you prefer? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's rough. That's a rough one. So bed ticks aren't a thing then? That's right. Okay, good. I noticed how you glossed right over the ghost part, though. (laughs) What? No. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I think it's important to mention because it is part of the lore. But, uh, yeah. Big thanks, by the way, to Tasha, who sent in uh, a request for that topic. And it was so much fun to read about. Good job. Speaking of sending stuff in, don't forget our Halloween episode is coming up. We're still accepting... um, submissions yeah. for your ghost stories, stuff that's happened to you. It could be a ghost story. It may be just something odd or a weird coincidence, something that could be termed paranormal. Uh, record it on your phone and then email it to us at curator at the box of oddities.com and you might end up in our Halloween show. We love hearing from you. We so much enjoy these Halloween episodes because we love hearing you guys tell your stories. Curator at the box of oddities.com. We look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. (laughs) And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash BoxOfOdditiesPodcast On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at BoxOfOdditiesPodcast Copyright 2020 All Rights Reserved If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.